to Libraryland Loves, a podcast from the Ontario Library Association. We've been talking a lot lately about how to work with teams virtually, and I think a conversation that's equally important is how we're engaging with our communities, given that most of us are still working virtual. And not just by increasing our presence online, by posting videos or hosting some Zoom chats. All of those things are great, but they often make assumptions about the abilities of the people on the other end of the mouse or the touchscreen. So today, I'm really excited to talk about some ideas and tips that will help your library be more accessible to your community. Some of these are little tweaks or tools embedded in platforms that you're likely already using, but they're all really easy and they'll significantly help to increase your accessibility. Now, it's not only a great topic, but today I'm also thrilled to have this great guest. If you don't know who Jessamine West is, well, please correct that immediately. I think that she is not only one of the loveliest people on the internet, she's also one of my favorite voices in library land. Her interests include the digital divide, legislation related to library services, and new technologies that can help rural libraries make the most of their small budgets, spaces, and staff. She keeps a blog at librarian.net, where she's recently written about topics like senior-friendly devices, what's the deal with quote-unquote free ebook sites, and a tutorial on how to add fair use images to Wikipedia pages. Jessamine was a spotlight speaker years ago at the OLA conference, and I'm thrilled to be able to speak with her again today. So we're going to take a quick break and be right back with Jessamine. Welcome to Library Land Loves, Jessamine. Hey, thank you. So today we're here to talk about accessibility. And I mean, I could have talked to you honestly about so many things. Your reading list alone, I could mine for hours, but you have a real passion and understanding how to help your library community more effectively, whether that be working through the challenges of being a rural library or helping people be more comfortable with technology. It, it seems like you can really speak to issues of accessibility ad nauseum. Is that the right way to phrase that? I think so. Ad nauseum maybe isn't how I would put it, but uh, <laughs> but in a general sense, one of the reasons I like talking about accessibility is, I mean, two reasons, right? One, more access helps everyone, right? The more we can design things universally, the more everyone feels sort of part of the story and it doesn't feel like you're sort of bolting on something after the fact. And the other reason is, I'm surprised more people aren't, because librarians I think are great advocates. I don't see as many people advocating for accessibility issues, maybe because they mm -hmm. see it as a technology issue, or maybe because they're just not sure, or they feel like it's not their wheelhouse. They have other wheelhouses. So it's not 100% my wheelhouse, but I think especially getting started with accessibility is a, a place I feel comfortable helping people help other people. Is this something that um, you've become more interested in as you've had to help people navigate through these issues on their own? Or is this just something that you've kind of always been interested in? Well, it's funny. When I was a little kid, um, we uh, had a friend who worked at uh, Perkins School for the Blind, which was near me growing up. And so when mm -hmm. I, um, and my mother would take us over there. She was a big, like, I grew up in a tiny town. And she was like, these kids are not going to know what the world is like unless we do kind of family field trips. And so we would go to the School for the Blind and hang out with the kids and talk about what their issues were. And so as a really young kid, I sort of learned like, oh, being blind doesn't mean you can't play basketball as a very mm -hmm. basic uh, thing to understand. But I realized that my feelings about those kinds of things when I was younger 
uh, and the way rural communities have a tendency to take care of all the people in their community in a way you don't see mm -hmm. as much in the cities where there's social service agencies. And so as I got older, uh, I didn't know that was unusual until I especially started working, helping people, especially novice users, learn how to use computers. And I realized in many cases there were some basic accessibility things, you know, making the font bigger on a browser, that mm -hmm. if you didn't know how to do it, interacting with technology could be really frustrating and challenging in a space that you could otherwise not only thrive in, but receive real benefits from. And so I decided, you know, being kind of a loudmouth about this stuff was a useful place to be because I can be good at getting that message across, I feel, in a somewhat friendly way. So not like, ah, these jerks at Microsoft, but like, did you know that Zoom allows you to Mm -hmm. do captioning or whatever and so yeah i do see a lot of people you know they can't use a trackpad and they don't even know they can plug in a mouse as another basic example right. making the font bigger high contrast colors all these mm -hmm. things can really help make technology not be lousy for people and as someone whose That's life has been really helped by technology and who feels like rural people especially can benefit from having that access to do certain things. I just want to help people solve problems and this can get them on that path. And it's interesting, you know, the idea that there might be some library people that are that would say, oh, that's technology, that's not me, I, I don't do that. But now there's really no way to avoid that because we're all having to do technology, quote unquote, every I mean, day. that has been one of the things that's been really interesting about this last year. Like I used to just be someone who was the computer lady. And if you had a computer question, mm -hmm. you would come to me. And that would encompass certain things more often than other things. You know, doing online shopping. How do I connect with my bank? How does Facebook work? That kind of stuff. But now... Mm -hmm. Everything is a techno technologically mediated interaction or significantly more, you know, hobbies, mm -hmm. friends, socializing, getting medical information like around here, you know, uh, vaccination stuff has been opening up really rapidly. And that's, you right. know, there's a phone number, but there's also, if you're comfortable with technology, a lot of paths and the more nimble you are, you the librarian or you the end user, the more satisfaction you're going to have and the less you're going to waste your time so that you have your time free to do everything else that's exhausting. I mean, you know, I like my life, don't get me wrong, but like, you know, so much more of it is computers. I don't mind that, but for a lot of people, that's a real hurdle along with all yeah. the other hurdles that, you know, as librarians, I feel like we can really help ease that burden for people. And that's a really nice place to be able to be. And I get, you know, I think it, it is a burden for a lot of library staff that haven't had to do this kind of instruction before. So I think, you know, this topic, this chat today is helpful just because they're, they're little things that they can grasp and, and teach other people as well. So, so let's get into it. So it's your top five tips for, um, for making your library, your services, increasing your accessibility. Great. Yeah. Top five tips. Tip number one. A lot of um, libraries have been preparing video content or they're doing some of their programming over Zoom. In you know many ways, they are uh, interacting with patrons visually, which is fine. Um, but there are some things that you can do to make those things more accessible, especially to people who are hard of hearing. So um, mm -hmm. captions are the main thing that um, 
you can add to any kind of video content that can help people mm -hmm. understand it. Now, doing stuff like described, uh, described audio where you're talking about what's mm -hmm. happening on the screen is sort of a different level and may require a level of professionalism that you wouldn't be able to do on your own. But right. one of the things people may not know is I think Zoom may be, I don't think I'm going out on a limb here, really the, the major platform that a lot of this mm -hmm. content is presented on, you know, right price, easy to use for a lot of people. And one of the things people mm -hmm. may not know is like Zoom Professional has always had the ability to turn on captions, you know, and I'm hand waving here because this isn't going to kind of step you through, but used to have that ability for people who paid. And Zoom, I think, mm -hmm. finally got the memo and has now gotten to the point where if you have a Zoom account, free, paid, whatever, you can enable captioning. It takes a couple steps, yeah. but it's really mostly boxes to click and places to, mm -hmm. um, you know, point and whatever. And it'll do kind of automatic captioning of videos. It's not perfect. Um, if you were going to prepare this video for later, you could, you know, tweak it, make sure everybody's name was mm -hmm. spelled right and etc. But if you want to do a live program over Zoom, you can turn captions on, which means people who are hard of hearing or maybe people who like to chew loudly while they are watching your program, which we can all do at home mm -hmm. now, which is delightful. It helps them as well, right? So it helps a lot of Absolutely. different kinds of people. And now it's a thing that you can get free. I only just found this out yesterday and I was thrilled because we'd been looking at using, you know, some, some captioning services where a human actually captions, well, which is also great. And, um, I still think those services are worthwhile if you have really technical language or something where you really want to make sure, you know, it's getting the correct words, but it worked really well. And it was actually pretty accurate when, um, when I tried it out yesterday. So yeah, that was a thrilling, Thing to find out for sure. Yeah. And so, um, you know, correspondingly, um, when you're using YouTube, this is sort of segueing into number two, because I think okay. for a lot of us, we put our caption or we put our video content up on YouTube, either initially, hey, we're just doing story times on YouTube, you know, when you're not looking for that sort of interactivity, or maybe you do YouTube live. Um, YouTube itself has not only the ability to caption, using a tool that's built into the platform. I just did a very basic like, hey, how to be a YouTube star program for uh, a tiny library that serves 900 people. Um, and so I, I learned how to do some of these things, but it will enable you to sort of hand type captions through a tool that they have. Uh, it can automatically generate captions first, and then you can go in and edit them. This tool may be a little easier to use than trying to kind of wedge captions into Zoom after the fact, like Zoom live captioning, mm -hmm. number one, cool. Captioning YouTube videos and other content that you want to store online using the platform, not bad. And the other thing that it has, which I think is especially uh, useful for people in some parts of Canada, is auto translation. So that if you have mm -hmm. captions that are typed in in English, you can have YouTube make its best guess at how to translate that into, for example, French. Now, obviously this works better for, you know, the bigger languages and especially ones that are in 
you know, language families, I think we would have a harder time translating them into language for our Abenaki populations. And so you need to be mindful of that and, you know, have native mm-hmm. speakers give it, a, give it an eyeball. But not only captions, but translations work fairly decently in YouTube. And if you have like a talk that you gave where you already have most of the words for it or a scripted thing, story time, Mm -hmm. you can just upload that file and then just adjust the timestamps. I know it sounds complicated, but as someone who has tried it, it's not bad. Yeah, I mean, captions, they're they're becoming such a standard um, in events. I think it's been been about a year or so, uh, I started having an issue with my hearing and so I was turning on the captions on our TV. And, um, you know, to the annoyance of my husband, let me say that. Uh, he, you know, he, I think he was constantly trying to fight it and, and kept his eyes kept being drawn in. But let me just say, and this is not an accessibility perk, but it is a perk of, of closed captioning, that it sometimes will translate or, or caption um, song lyrics. And you really start to get more appreciation for like music producers and the types of music they put in, the, like the ties that they Indeed. all create. And it's amazing. Well, and I turn on captions. I mean, Netflix, you can watch caption a lot of caption content on Netflix, a smaller amount of audio described content, but you can watch a lot of caption stuff on Netflix. And my partner was exactly the opposite where I started turning on the captions. He would occasionally get distracted. It would depend on the thing. Um, But if we were watching together, you know, what it meant for him was he could kind of talk through the whole thing, which he loves to do. And I would always be like, be quiet, be quiet. I'm trying to hear what's going on. And, And I have that kind of very distractible like audio processing, I don't know what the thing is, but it's very hard mm-hmm. for me to be on a Zoom with six people if one person is on a Zoom with the dog barking in the background and another person is trying to talk. I just can't get any information out of it. And so right, situations right. where there's captioning makes it a lot easier to focus and it's less likely to be like bark, 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 woof along the bottom of your screen. Very helpful. It's also just helpful because, you have, you know, I think realizing what's going on in the homes of the people in your community. You could have, you know, um, a new mother or a caregiver that's trying to keep the volume down. And so that caption, they can participate in a way and still get a sense of what's going on without waking up the house or, or you know, causing too much right. noise. You never know. It's one of those things like curb yeah. cuts help not just people who use wheelchairs, but they help people with luggage, people with babies and strollers, people who just don't are unsteady on their feet, everybody. And you don't have to know, like you can promote it to certain communities if you know them, but doesn't have to be anybody's business. You can just offer it and it becomes useful. Okay. So that was tip number two. All right. Tip number three is alt text. Um, And alt text is just alternative text. And what it means specifically is when you post images, and this is You post an image on your website. You post an image on a social media platform. You post an animated GIF reaction to somebody on a social media platform. Every single one of those has an option. And the option may be obvious or it may be not so obvious where you can add text that kind of appears, I like to say, behind the image, right? So Mm -hmm. if somebody is... um, interacting with that content, that web page, that Instagram app, that, um, you know, Twitter stream, and they're using a screen reader, uh, which which Mm -hmm. speaks text out loud to people. 
uh, that screen reader can read a description of the image. And I think this is another thing where people can sometimes feel like, I don't know how to, what does that mean? Describe the image, how, what? And there have actually been some really helpful explainers. I'll be happy to send you a link or two of people right. who either are visually impaired or who use screen readers or who just work in the accessibility space, giving you some tips and tricks about how to describe a thing. You don't have to go over the top. Uh, and it, it, it's a little opaque, I think, to people who are interacting visually with this content. I didn't know, you know, Twitter, like I've always used alt text for my images, but until I got a plugin for my browser, I wasn't able to read other people's alt text descriptions. And it really has helped me learn how other people use it. So like, you know, an animated GIF reaction, that's like hilarious to you and like everyone who can see it. But for the people who can't, you could still make that joke pretty great if you can describe what's going on in that picture, right? And sometimes I don't even know who the people are in these animated GIFs, right? It's a lady I should probably know who, and to be fair, I have some visually disabled Twitter followers that I interact with who will occasionally laugh at my alt text jokes and that's very gratifying. But like mm -hmm. Instagram, you can do this on Instagram. Facebook, you can do this on Facebook. Um, web page builders depends on the web page builder, but the, you know, the Googleable term is alt text, you know, so alt text okay. Weebly, alt text Wix, alt text WordPress. And it's worth understanding these are different from captions. A caption is something that appears visually underneath the image to people who are reading the text and the pictures and seeing them with their eyes. Alt text lives behind an image in what we call the metadata of mm -hmm. the page so that people who are using specific tools can get extra content from that. And right. so I spend a little bit of time kind of nudging people, especially who are in public facing positions interacting with the public and serving the entire public, you know, mm -hmm. it takes a little bit longer. Like I put my slides on the internet, you know, using this just web page builder and I have to describe every one of them because pictures of slides don't have the words embedded in them the way you would see them when you were reading them. And so mm -hmm. it does take a little bit of extra time. And as far as I'm concerned, that's what you should be doing to be accessible to your entire community. But I know, I know it's hard. I know people feel that they're out of their element. And I know that you may think you don't have people in your community who fit that, but that very well may be because your content isn't available to them. That's interesting. I didn't, um, it's one of those steps that I am, I am very guilty of not using alt text. And I think that part of it is just because it's not part of the workflow. Exactly. It's not part of the standard, you know, it doesn't pop up as a thing you have to do like geotag or something as you go through. Right. Um, and so I'm, I, I'm going to take a look at that, but it's also interesting that you have, um, the add on in your browser that allows you to see other people's alt text, because I think seeing that would, would be such a great reminder for that process and also just kind of makes it a standard, you know, workflow for you. Like you see other people doing it. So you're going to, well, you're gonna exactly. Kind of... Twitter was very guilty of 
not even having this ability for the first, I don't know, nine, 10 years of the browser. And then when they rolled out the ability, it was only available, I don't remember if it was on the phone or the desktop version, but not both. And it was embarrassing. I mean, there was tons of people in the accessibility communities like, why, why? And I think the way I found that browser plugin, which I hadn't had a need for before, was somebody asked me a question. Hey, I'm taking over an institutional Twitter account. There's a ton of um, scheduled posts. They've got a ton of images. How do I figure out what the alt text is, which is actually a harder problem than hmm. you would think it was. Like they had complete access to the account, but they couldn't figure out if the person who had queued up all these posts had included essentially, right. you know, a standard accessibility issue. And then I found this plugin and was like, oh my gosh. So now I can mouse mm. over a lot of these pictures. You'd be surprised how few people use alt text, unfortunately, but I can see how people describe them and learn a little bit about how to improve my own description. That's great. Also, sometimes I just, I, I need GIFs explained to me, GIFs, GIFs, whatever, you know? I feel like that would be helpful. I'm just going to pretend you call them GIFs in Canada and we call them GIFs in America, and it's just one of those ZZ things. <laughs> that sounds about right. Yeah. Okay, great. Right, me too. I so don't understand so many animated GIFs, and so if I can see people describing them, I'm like, oh, that's who that guy is. I don't know who that guy right. is. Yeah. Okay, great. So that was tip number three. Tip number four. Well, tip number four is one of those ones where you never know if you need it until you need it. Um, mm -hmm but learning about accessibility tools on uh, mobile devices, right? Because I think okay. people who have a simplistic understanding of what it's like to live with a visual disability um, may just presume that like smartphones are off limits or everything is spoken, right? Um, but realistically, there's a whole bunch of interesting ways you can use smartphones and both Apple and Android platforms have a lot of built-in accessibility features. And these can be um, really straightforward ones that actually lots of people might enjoy, like reduce motion. You know, there's a whole bunch of these pew, like expand and contract shaky things and like, you know, things that move around and whatever. And there's actually like just a lip, a, like a toggle on the iPhone. Like just make this bounce around less, you know, that can be, just can make your phone calmer and like for me i had a shoulder injury this must have been three or four years ago and couldn't really type like normal you know i usually type like bugs bunny so normal for me is not necessarily normal normal mm -hmm. but couldn't really do it <laughs> and i learned about um speech to text tools again uh, every yeah. smartphone has this um, and I think a lot of us may use it when you're like yelling at your phone, like Siri, tell me where I can get a bagel or, hey, Google, I want to listen to some Bob Dylan. But they don't understand or they may not. Maybe everybody knows this. I don't know. Um, it's news to a lot of my uh, the people I work with. They don't necessarily understand that um, you can just use this for dictation. Right. I mm -hmm. think a lot of us were used to the world in which Dragon, naturally speaking, was how you did dictation because none of the platforms did it. Um, and now all the platforms do it. So this is like yeah. mobile phones, any desktop or laptop or tablet computer that is newer than, I don't know, five years. Like this mm -hmm. is not cutting edge. Right. It may even be 10 years where you set mm -hmm. it up once and then 
you can literally like press a button, talk to your machine. It does a really decent job of, you know, tracking what, um, what you've said to it. And it can mean that for people who, you know, have an injury, don't have any fingers at all, like whatever the thing is, Mm -hmm. they can interact with their technology in a way that works for them. Other things include changing the contrast, making uh, the color contrast a lot uh, sharper for people whose vision isn't great, but is okay. So that, you know, you just get like brighter outlines around text entry areas, for example, or like a button where maybe you slid now becomes a button um, that you just have to poke at. Um, certain things like that. I often just encourage people like find the accessibility section of your device, click around and look at that. You know, I made my cursor gigantic on my computer so that I can find it. Um, I, uh, I, I got my battery replaced in my phone and doing that broke my home button briefly, which on the iPhone is how you open it up. And Everything. I had to learn how the accessibility tool worked so that I could get an actionable home button that appeared on the screen. Because for some people who can't like press a mechanical button, but they could touch one on their screen, solved the entire problem for me. And so you don't know you need it until you need it. But theoretically, yeah. a sort of a band of librarians who are well-educated on this, who are in touch with their communities in ways that, especially with offline populations, uh, you know, these people may not have a community of practice or like-minded individuals on the internet. You can be like, oh, hey, I notice you're checking out a lot of large print books. Did you know we can make the font bigger on the public access PC? You can make the font bigger on your phone. We can give mm -hmm. you a better color contrast. You know, a whole bunch of things that are just kind of handy and helpful. And all mm -hmm. the platforms do it now, which was yeah. not maybe true a decade ago or before smartphones got as smart. Yeah, we've even been using the speech to text uh, in the Chrome browser, like just in Google Docs for my daughter with school. So, you know, she's at that point where she's not completely comfortable using a pen and writing. And so we were using that and it's been working great. So yeah, yeah it's not even just mobile phones that you're using this on, right? It's, it's uh, laptops and desktops yeah, as well. Yeah, I've been helping my 97 year old landlady use an iPad and she has pretty bad vision and her, you know, manual dexterity isn't great. It's okay. And so kind mm -hmm. of poking in an iPad screen because, you know, she knew how to type on a keyboard, but poking at the iPad screen, it was a really hard shift for her. But like hitting the mm -hmm. microphone button and then talking and then watching the words appear on the screen, you know, it's a magic trick basically. And it helps her solve her problems, which is wanting to communicate with people and not having the technology be an impediment, but having it mm -hmm. actually make it easier and go better. Absolutely. Did you ever watch the show Grace and Frankie? Uh, I watched like the first like three or four episodes, I think, and then okay. COVID hit and my friends with the TV, I couldn't hang out there anymore. Oh, okay. Right, <laughs> sorry. Well, it's a show with Lily Tomlin and Jane Fonda, and it's kind of the experience of these women in their 70s. That was the first time I'd ever seen or realized that you could increase the font on your phone, like your text messages, because uh, Lily Tomlin's character has like a gigantic font where like the word font is the width of the phone kind of thing. Um, and I was like, wow, that is ridiculous. Who needs that? And then I tried it and I said, oh, that's who, me, I do, I need that. Well, and it's totally it's true with just doing, you know, command or control plus, plus, plus on your desktop. 
I have a lot of websites that are not designed for people with, um, you know, glasses, right? Like mm -hmm. whatever, whatever the thing is, but I find in any of the browsers that I use, you know, on my computer, it's a Mac. I just hit command plus plus. It bumps it up to mm -hmm. like 120%. And best of all, it stays there. So now every right. time I look at that website, I don't even have to get angry at it anew every time because it's the text is too small or it's gray on white or whatever the problem is. Mm -hmm. I can use those tools to make it an easier experience for me. And it's such a joy getting to show that to somebody else because it's, it's simple enough you know, they can just put a post-it on their laptop and be like, command plus means the font is bigger. And it's, it's glorious because it doesn't, yeah, it is. and it's hard to explain sometimes. They're like, but how is it doing that? I mean, what's especially challenging is saying it's not going to print that way, though, uh, which right. printing is its own. I have no accessibility yeah. tips about printing. It, is, right. okay. <laughs> it continues to be the worst. But, right. but, but like that kind of thing, so easy. I use it myself. Yeah. I show it to other people. And no matter what your device is, again, there is a way to make the font bigger or smaller or a different color. Mm -hmm. Sometimes you need a browser mm -hmm. plug-in to change some of the color contrast and things. But okay. those things are possible. And that does lead me into tip number five. Here we go. Which is one of your best accessibility tips is knowing that you're not the first person this has happened to, whether you're the mm -hmm. person who's trying to solve a problem or whether you're a library staff person who is trying to help a person with the thing. And there are huge amounts of forums and other people talking online about how to deal with stuff. Sometimes these can be kind of technical forums like, thinkdifferent.stackexchange.com, org, whatever it is, um, where it's like Apple geeks really trying to figure out seriously complicated stuff. But sometimes it's just, you know, the, the Windows forum that talks about mm -hmm. like, oh, hey, you've got to move from Office to Office 365. Here's five changes you should know. Or, you know, how do I make the font bigger? You can use your favorite search engine, whatever that is, you know, Google, Duck, duck, go, bing, whatever your thing is. And you can literally nowadays type in your question, more or less, and it will return often forums, you know, professional websites, expert interactive places, or maybe places where you can ask. Like, I think we're all pouring one out for Yahoo Answers this week because it was a great kind of goofy interactive place, but it was a place where you could ask a question. And sometimes nice. that's going to be your community mailing list. Sometimes that's going to be, you know, interacting with your library. Sometimes if you're a librarian, it's going to be interacting with your library association. We're all having a very heavy conversation about changing our quarantine guidelines. But we, we all learn and get smarter by sharing that information and learning from decisions other people have made. So it's challenging. I think a lot of people feel like whatever their personal technology fail is, it is unique and horrible. And right. I think, I don't know if it makes us feel better that their technology <laughs> fails are in fact, in many cases, completely universal. But mm -hmm. it is actually worth knowing that um, there's probably someone who has had this problem before. You can mm -hmm. learn about that problem. There are many 
um, very good communities of practice uh, for accessibility specifically that you that do a lot of explaining about what's built into an iPhone. Maybe you like YouTube. Like I learned about a lot of iPhone accessibility things by watching the Tommy Edison experience. Tommy Edison is 100% blind and has been blind since he was a kid. And he has a YouTube video series. He's, he's the cheeriest, friendliest dude talking about how he does stuff. Hey, Tommy Edison, do you keep the lights on in your house when you're alone? Why or why not? Or he's got another buddy, I don't remember his name, who's not completely blind, but is legally blind. And they had this great YouTube video of the two of them talking about the differences in their lives between being able to see zero and being able to kind of make out shapes and, and how their lives differed. But watching them talk about technology, both of them, and many other people, there's a, you know, I follow a lot of YouTube channels of people who are living with various, uh, uh, you know, print and audio uh, physical disabilities, just so I can kind of learn about what their thing is. How do you do that mm -hmm. thing? How does that work? And having an inquiring, inquisitive mind and realizing that the answer is probably out there, though maybe not in as easy a format as you would like to find it, you know, mm -hmm. keeps me moving forward so that, for example, this Twitter alt text situation, I was able to believe that there was probably an answer, even though it actually took a little bit of time. Uh, I think I saw this plugin recommended on another forum where people were talking about something else. And sometimes you just have to like, you know, put something on a post-it or on a to-do list and be like, I'm gonna figure out how other people have solved yeah. this problem. I probably don't have to reinvent the wheel right. or the iPhone in order to help this person do their thing. Um, those are great tips. I have, I have a follow-up question. What are your thoughts or what have you done in terms of um, asking people who are coming to programs what their accessibility needs are or if they might need, if you, you know, I'm thinking of when we, when we put up surveys or as part of a registration process, asking people if they need something to help them hear better or see better or things like that. Do you have any suggestions around that? Well, I think two. Um, and some of this is informed by my work uh, working for a statewide humanities organization. So I've been on the board of the Vermont Humanities Council and I'm on their technology mm -hmm. and accessibility committee. And, you know, we decided we were going to do two things, right? We were going to, number one, try to take care of kind of low hanging fruit of accessibility ourselves and just assuming mm -hmm. if we were going to have a program, we were going to have it in a place with an accessible bathroom. You know, if okay. we were going to have a program, we were going to, you know, if we couldn't reduce the amount of, you know, steps you had to climb to get into the building, we would just communicate that up front so that people would mm -hmm. sort of understand what the issues were. And we, we would communicate these things to all of our attendees, right? There yeah. will be an accessible bathroom. There are two steps to get into the building. If you need the elevator, let us know. Um, we would communicate to our speakers just assume you have somebody in the audience who doesn't see particularly well. And so we just gave them some basic tips, minimum mm -hmm. font size, talk about color contrasts and how you uh, convey information. Don't use red and green in your pie chart. It doesn't make any sense to a lot of people. Uh, plus mm -hmm. it's a terrible color combination, but you know, those kinds of things and, and some little tips about how to kind of describe what's on a slide which to be honest helps everybody because a lot of times yeah. you're like, I don't know what's going on here. Like I'm supposed yeah. to get some message from this that I am not receiving. I, I'm curious what the speaker 
thinks about. And so usually mm -hmm. what I found helpful is number one, a statement of the accessibility features that are already present at this event. And then at the end of that, so that it kind of becomes clear, we care, like we care a lot that everybody can have this program. You know, there'll be a special place for parents with kids, right? And one of the things that I didn't talk about at all in accessibility yet is, you know, you have people with cognitive accessibility issues, right? Either they don't mm. have great memories, um, you know, blinky lights will give them an epileptic seizure, yeah. um, you know, they need low sensory input. And so those kinds of things are also things, you know, this is gonna have a lot of noise. So if you've got kids that have a hard time with that, maybe you wanna view the recorded version of it that'll be captioned but maybe mm -hmm. your kid wouldn't be comfortable in this. And you don't tell that to anybody, but you get that information across so that people can, number one, make a choice for themselves or for somebody yeah. who they may be uh, wanting to attend or interact with. And then number two, after you've done that, that's the first part, you let, you ask people if they have, you know, accessibility requirements beyond that. And, you know, mm -hmm. it's challenging, right? If you have somebody who's literally doing type as somebody talks live captioning you know you've got to hire that person you've got to you know pay money for that you've got to figure out how it's going to work and so i do understand why libraries especially but you know cultural institutions generally are like let us know two weeks in advance if you need accommodations but man two weeks in advance is a real i don't know what i'm doing two weeks in advance anything <laughs> right nothing I don't know what I'm having yeah. for dinner. And so right. trying to realize that maybe what we have done in the past in and of itself can present barriers and they may be unavoidable. Do not get me mm -hmm. wrong. Um, but trying to find ways to make them work. And the last thing I think I would mention in this whole arc is sort of a refrain that uh, I read about in disability communities a lot. I spend a lot of time being an engaged reader, but not commenter on like disability Twitter, for example, is, um, you know, nothing about us without us. So if you are mm. contemplating accessibility, an accessibility stretch or a reach from where your organization is, consider reaching out to people in your community who might be affected. I've got a lot of, like I said, like, you know, blind people on Twitter I interact with. I have a lot of like deaf older people who are happy to talk to me about how the library can serve their needs better. Figuring out who those people are, um, understanding that people in the disability community shouldn't work for you for free to help you mm -hmm. solve your problems. And so finding ways to, you know, pay or compensate people as part of your accessibility plan, um, mm -hmm. I think is a necessary part of this. But figuring out ways to include everybody from the beginning, you know, programming that is useful to different accessibility communities before you try to figure out how to bolt on accessibility to a program you're already doing. And okay. it's hard, right? Because all of it is more. Yep. But I do think the best way to frame that is it's more because in the past it maybe wasn't enough. And I don't exactly. mean to shame anybody be negative to everybody's best efforts. But I just think we get smarter as a community, as a yeah. library community, as a community of readers, as a community of lifelong learners. And part of that is learning how to include more people who may not have been included. And simple accessibility tips <laughs> are kind of part Absolutely. of how you start with that. Yeah, that's great. 
I mean, yeah, we've been doing this for almost 400 days now. And I think we've learned a few things along the way. And I think we're all kind of striving to, to do more. And so thank you. I think these tips will go a long way to help people. I've certainly learned a few things. I'm going right away after this to look up my browser plugin for alt texts. And, well, uh, and I can send you some links of, you know, some do. of the things I discussed. I've, you know, written them down. And like any good librarian, I'll be like, I'll send you an email. with the. Thank you for that work site. <laughs> I think it helps, right? It's easy to just blah, 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 talk about stuff. But I think at the end of the day, people want to be like, where do I find it? How do I use it? And yep. when I say browser plugin, I really do feel like I need to stress for people who haven't used them. There's no coding. It's literally you click a thing, you yeah. click OK, you've got the thing. Yep. Don't, don't be frightened. It's not technical. I'm a little bit Absolutely. more technical than the average person, but I can't code. So... I yeah. try to give things that are genuine options for people. That's great. Yeah, these are things that you probably don't even have to get your IT department. I mean, some libraries have very locked down situations, so maybe some of you, but for the most part, you can put a plugin in without any uh, any problems. Exactly. So, yeah, you could even great. talk somebody else through how to put a plugin in, which I think is <gasps> the other part. Teach a man to fish. Right? Right? Yeah. <laughs> Teach a lady to make her font bigger. <laughs> All right. Well, thank you so much for your time today, Jessamine. I really appreciate it. These are great tips. I think that uh, people hopefully will be able to take these and and um, and make really some quick and easy changes that will be so beneficial to their communities and to the work that they do. So thank you for your time. It's definitely what I'm hoping to be able to achieve. So thank you too. And for those of you who are interested in this topic, I hope you'll take a look at OLA's upcoming technology conference. Digital Odyssey takes place on Monday, June 7th, and the theme this year is how to get it or how to get IT right, tackling accessible tech. And the program, it's really great this year. We're featuring a number of speakers with lived experience from the disabilities community. We also have talks from the Center for Equitable Library Access, the Canadian Hearing Society, Apple Education. There'll be a number of lightning style talks and the opportunity to chat with other attendees and, and learn more about tools that you might not know about um, that are accessible and help you to be more accessible to your communities. So take a look at that on accessola.com. Under events, you can find Digital Odyssey there. Thanks again to Jessamine West for joining us today. That is all the time that we have. It has been a wonderful conversation about accessibility tips, and I hope that you have also enjoyed this chapter of Library Land Loves. We'll see you soon.